Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 20th episode of 2021. You know, fiber broadband continues to be a very hot topic in Washington. Yesterday, there were two broadband-related hearings in Congress, both of which were very positive for the Fiber Broadband Association's mission to expand the deployment of fiber broadband. The Senate Finance Committee held a hearing to discuss financing options for an infrastructure package. At the same time, the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government, which has jurisdiction over the FCC, held a hearing on lessons learned from COVID-19 and the need for universal broadband. At the Senate Finance Committee's hearing covered all aspects of infrastructure, such as roads, bridges, as well as broadband. Broadband was mentioned by nearly every senator that participated in the hearing. There's no doubt that the infrastructure package under discussion will include broadband, and senators from both parties expressed support for funding to extend broadband to every household. The House Appropriations hearing was focused exclusively on the importance of broadband. There also be, appears to be bipartisan support there for additional funds to aid in the construction of broadband networks to the unserved areas. There was much less pushback than we expected on a minimum 100 by 100 megabit per second symmetric speed requirement. All the witnesses supported setting a high bar for government funding. You know, tomorrow I'll be speaking to the President's National Infrastructure Advisory Council to emphasize the importance of fiber as critical infrastructure for our nation's future. I also hope that you all had a chance to attend our webinar last week with Shirley Bloomfield of NTCA on building big and bold broadband infrastructure. Our guest today, Ernesto Falcone, and I were panelists along with Jim Stegman of CostQuest. So if you missed it, you can visit our website under events and see the replay. But before I formally introduce our guest today, I'd like to introduce Trish Ehlers from our team, who's gonna walk us through some housekeeping items. Thanks, Gary, and good morning to everyone who's joined us today. I'm gonna quickly go over a few logistical items for you. If everyone would please keep in mind that you are all in listen mode only. Uh, To ask a question, which we do encourage, please type it into the question box located within your control panel on the right side of your screen. We will host a Q&A session with Ernesto toward the end. This presentation is being recorded and will be available to members on FBA's website within 24 hours. You can find the recording in the events tab under the Fiber for Breakfast drop-down option. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be prompted to complete a brief feedback survey, and we do encourage you to do that because we uh, pay attention to your input. I'll pass it now back to Gary to introduce our panelists and get us started. Thanks, Trish. And again, good morning, everyone, and welcome. I'm Gary Bolton, the President and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. You know, last week we had a great session where Charles Sheevers, the CTO at Comscope, discussed Wi-Fi 6E and Wi-Fi 7. Today, we're gonna be discussing digital equity, the politics of fiber, with one of the leading experts on this topic, Ernesto Falcone from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Ernesto is the senior legislative counsel at EFF with a primary focus on intellectual property, open internet issues, broadband access, and competition policy. He represents EFF's 
advocacy on behalf of its members and all consumers for a free and open internet before state legislatures and Congress. Ernesto's work includes pushing the state of California to pass the strongest net neutrality law in the country in response to federal repeals efforts, as well as leading EFS research and advocacy to promote universal, available, affordable, and competitive fiber broadband networks. So welcome, Ernesto. And we look, in, look forward to hearing your insights and views on digital equity. Um, for our audience, please type in your questions as you go, and we'll address those in the Q&A at the end of the presentation. So with that, I'll turn things over to Ernesto. Hey, thanks, Gary. Thanks for the introduction. Um, so if you if you could if we could advance the first slide to the the end, I know there's a little transition. Thank you. Um, this is just a quick rundown on who is the uh, the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We're a uh, nonprofit public interest law firm. Uh, we're based out in California, and we're primarily funded by dues-paying members all across the country, uh, in every state, and and pretty much in every district. Uh, who support our mission on, on as you see on the right, uh, you know, this range of, of civil liberty, innovation, and, and, and lib uh, fr freedom issues. And I think um, the issue of broadband access and the reason why we got involved was the sheer fact that if you didn't have robust connectivity to the internet, uh, you aren't a full participant in society. Uh, your freedom of association, your, your, your freedom of expression, uh, your ability just to, to be a, a full-fledged citizen is, is curtailed. And so, uh, my work uh, for the last handful of years has really been focused on kind of two two pieces. One, how do we get 21st century access to all people? Uh, and kind of a derivative of that is what does that mean? Uh, and two, uh, how do we lower the bar enough where broadband access is no longer the province of, of a handful of very large companies, but uh, can kind of bring down to the local level and, and how to resolve that? And, and that really stems from the fact that 30 years ago, when we were founded, our uh, founding members were a lot of the people who built the original, you know, the early technology of the internet and believed, you know, as the technology advances, our rights should stay the same. In 2019, we, we essentially called for what, much of what we're seeing in the debate now. We said the, the United States has to have, and as well as the states, as well as the local governments uh, and local policy, the need to have a fiber for all plan. Uh, they need to have a, a, a focus on delivering uh, high capacity 21st century access to all people and uh, we need it desperately. Uh, if you look at the at the chart here, you know, this is kind of the status of what the data showed us at this point. And if you, if you know enough about kind of how these networks operate, you can kind of use this 250 down 25 megabits up uh, data from the FCC as a proxy of determining what kind of networks we're talking about. And if you look at this, you see uh, rural as well as low income uh, folks in America had pretty much one choice and, it's, and it wasn't gonna be, it wasn't fiber. Uh, and even in the middle tier, you had a lot, a lot of limited choice when it comes to high-speed access, and it's predominantly uh, uh, legacy cable networks uh, that people were connected to, uh, if they had any connection at all. You know, fiber, which is the green square up at the top there, uh, was not really ubiquitous in, in any way a handful of years ago, and, and still isn't today. Um, and if you compare us to our international uh, counterparts, you know, you look at the EU, for example, you see lots of fiber connectivity spread throughout the entire uh, region in terms of a lot of these advanced nations, if, if the United States at the time was around less than 30%, uh, you've got countries doing you know, two to three times as much fiber to the home deployment. The real story was just the how far ahead the advanced Asian markets were going to be. Uh, you know, I, I often tell staff today, you know, we're in 2021, but we, you know, we knew this years ago, uh, you know, about a billion gigabit symmetrical lines are being laid out in between South Korea, Japan, and, and China. And that has real ramifications of our competitiveness uh, going down the line. And so part of what, you know, EFF is, you know, we're a mix of lawyers, engineers, and activists. And so we kind of deployed our engineers for the first question uh, a handful of years ago, which was, 
you know, we could see with our own eyes, uh, fiber networks are delivering 10 gigabit networks and, and at a symmetrical level and at a, and a reasonable price. We wanted to kind of look under the hood as much as we could to understand uh, to and, and essentially formulate what our, our conclusion was, which is which was this, that, that fiber as a medium to move data uh, can't be matched by any of these legacy networks, whether it's uh, or even the, the many of the new ideas, uh, particularly on the wireless front. Uh, and so this is our white paper we produced. You know, we produced it really to explain to policymakers when they make infrastructure decisions, uh, which is exciting because that's where we are now, to really just explain the science and physics and engineering behind why why does a fiber wire do what it's doing, why is a copper wire doing what it's doing, a coaxial cable line, and why wireless operates the way it does. Really, from as pure of a not of an objective physics uh, analysis as we can give them, to because it's undeniable once you break it down. Uh, next slide, please. And so with our uh, graphic art graphics team, we try to create like a visual representation of what that means at the end of the day, um, because we operate on the on the mindset that uh, people will always need more uh, data, more more broadband over the years. And that's been consistent for about 40 years running, about 21 percent every year the growth uh, is going up. And this tries to show, you know, from a quick visual for for you know our readers and our members, um, what are we talking about? What are the stakes like how much of a difference of infrastructure? capacity are we talking about when we talk about you know sticking with cable versus uh deploying fiber versus any of the wireless options and so you know we've made this advocacy in in washington dc but really we're based in california we do a lot of work in sacramento uh we were just off the uh heels of, of passing net neutrality in sacramento so we have a pretty solid uh activist infrastructure in place on the issues of broadband access how it's treated and, and how, you, how you get it um, and so we began to, to get to work to try and explain to state regulators and, and the governor's office and other uh, entities within the state of California make these decisions, just, just what is at stake? And so we, we gathered many of the kind of the different entities who do fiber already. So private players, uh, co you know, cooperatives, non nonprofit advocates, municipalities, uh, all throughout the state of California and, and try to bring us all together to explain our different corners of the world and, and what we're trying to do. And so, you know, this kind of lays out what we recommended to uh, the state of California in the end of 2019 after that, that kind of mini conference we had with um, with the state. And there's a reason we had to do this education campaign. And, and it really stems from the fact that California's broadband plan and broadband infrastructure policy today is terrible. I mean, it is absolutely terrible, particularly even by today's standards. But this was a law passed in 2017. And uh, essentially stood for a couple of things. One, if you had a faster internet connection than six megabits down, one megabit up. Which I think for many in this audience would, would hear that number like, why does that even why does that even matter in today's world, let alone even five years ago? But essentially, the state will not support broadband infrastructure if your community had greater than you know 1990s era DSL, uh, and the state only expected networks to be built up to a 10 down, one megabit up standard. So not even at the federal definition of broadband, which was 25.3 established two years prior. And this was a highly supported law by many of the cable industry and, and, and many of the kind of the legacy companies. And there's a reason for that. You know, at the end of the day, if you are expecting uh, low metrics, then you're looking at the pre-existing networks that are already there and, uh, you know, incrementally upgrading those networks rather than deploying what I would argue, uh, you know, 21st century access. And so lots of money was spent this way. And really the pandemic has revealed like how, what a terrible idea that was, right? Funding slow networks on an incremental basis on the idea that um, you know, something is better than nothing, slight upgrades is better than nothing. And when usage and, and demand uh, rise, uh, you know, rose over, over the pandemic, suddenly millions of Californians were reliant on connections that just simply could not deliver the access they needed. 
Now, the funny thing about this story in the New York Times that I, I have here is that they completely miss fiber networks. No, I like every time when someone writes a broadband access story, I always look and see do they mention fiber? Because if they do and they explain fiber networks are operating differently, then they understand. But if they don't, uh, there's a real critical piece. And so they talked about how all sorts of internet access is having big issues. Uh, without a single mention of a fiber network, which you know, I, I polled many of the different players out there that are delivering, none of them had an issue with COVID-19 uh, in terms of the pandemic rise, which was around 40 to 50% more usage on average. Um, none of them had a problem handling that. And that was kind of the missed story here. So I, I, part of EFF's work is to do public advocacy and public information. And, and so I, you know, I wrote this piece to try and help explain to the, the, you know, the tech press really, um, that there is a digital divide that exists, but there's also this this reality of if your if your community has just basic internet access, but it's not being uh, upgraded with fiber today, uh, you 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 are also part of the the wrong side of the digital divide. Even if you have access, because the if the usage has grown to where it is now, uh, and it's probably going to stay at this level, and you're 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 unable to even participate fully, then you really don't have useful access. You know, kind of forget about the 2015 definition anymore. Uh, it's kind of useless as a metric. And so we, we set about uh, writing legislation to update the California infrastructure plan uh, in the midst of the pandemic to really uh, convert it to, to do one simple thing. Every state dollar that's invested in building a new network is a fiber network uh, and, not, and no more dollars spent on slow, you know, incrementally upgrading legacy networks. And the debate was, was really centra centralized around these three, uh, the, to these three issues, I would say. Um, you know, what is truly unserved? Uh, we, we argued that uh, if you lack a 25 by 25 connection, that that was a way to help uh, eliminate legacy networks that were no longer able to upgrade any further, kind of hit their maximum capacity, what they can do, uh, so that you make them eligible for deploying fiber. Uh, you know, like the you know cable companies as well as uh, uh, some of the legacy uh, uh, DSL companies, you would argue, oh, no, 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 25 three is still a good metric to to assess. But what they're essentially saying is, um, please don't please don't deploy fiber in this area, right? <laughs> please deploy fiber in our backyard. Um, and, and the, you know, we're having this debate now, but future-proof infrastructure, uh, you know, this is a, the legislative definition that I, that I wrote in the state of California, but I, I will say when I wrote the average latency piece, it was really kind of a political compromise because it actually should be much lower for when, it, when we were saying fiber, we're talking about 10 to 12 milliseconds, but we picked a number that, uh, addressed some of the cable arguments, which was, Hey, we've upgraded our cable networks with hybrid fiber. Don't you build in our area. And uh, you know we we can we we agreed with that point because most of this was really about rural California, and handful parts of low-income uh, urban California, and then the lastly the debate was on you know if the government was to build and spend 100% of the cost of constructing these networks, you know these networks have to be open, uh, they have to be open and, and shareable because in many times you may only be able to finance uh, sustainably one fiber network. And, you know, and this is just a quick uh, snippet of like who who was in favor of this approach and who was against. Uh, you know, again, it's the same players that we're seeing in um, you know in Washington D.C. If you go, uh, go back one slide real quick, you know, and it's it's uh, you know it's school districts, it's nonprofits, it's local governments, it's private players, and um, you know when we were winning the first rounds pretty handedly in the legislature, you know, the counter effort was uh, you know kind of perpetuated by these same uh, industry players was to really introduce an alternative bill that says, we know we, this will be a more effective way to get more people connected to, to broadband. Uh, and the idea was let's emphasize 25.3, let's, let's only do strictly the unserved of who doesn't have 25.3, you know, really kind of um, anti-fiber provisions that at the end of the day, again, go, circles us back to the mistakes we've made in the past, which is let's just, let's just incrementally upgrade the old lines and, uh, that's, and this low speed's good enough for people, uh, which we know is, is just not true today. 
And then, and the end of uh, near the end of the year, uh, Governor Newsom, you know, issued an executive order that at least settled the debate about whether we're doing 25.3 or not anymore uh, by adopting a 100 megabit download standard. Uh, notably, uh, he said nothing about the upload, which kind of gives you an idea of of the influence of of the of the legacy uh, industry that really can't handle a high upload unless they transition to fiber, which which they should. I mean, I think any re, you know any rational player in this place isn't really resting on slow access as a means of, of, of a perpetual status. They have to think about how they can you know, transition at some point to fiber. You know, but they were able to convince the, you know, at the time the governor not to really say anything about upload, which is a means of, of you know, kind of allowing uh, a lot of these older networks uh, to, re to remain. Uh, and, but at the same time, the rural county governments were very engaged in particular in California to, to do open access fiber. And so, so through this debate, and so, uh, we came awfully close at the end of last year. We ran out of time because the pandemic really kind of destroyed the legislative process and <laughs> how things work normally. And uh, California has a lot of constitutional deadlines when you can move things. And so we just we literally were the clock was ran out on us uh, at the assembly level rather than a vote. But through that executive order, uh, you know, a call for a new California broadband plan came about. And I won't go through all the details, but this is just a quick snippet of of a whole range of stuff EFF's been articulating. So, you know, when we mean we want to get fiber to every single person, we really do mean every single person without exception. Uh, and, and, you know, I think the rarest exception would be if we, if we couldn't figure out electricity to them, then maybe we can't figure out fiber. But, you know, we're talking about a very small population. Often people will talk about uh, this in the sense of like, well, like, what's the... How do we do? How do we? Uh, you know, these people are too expensive to serve, or these these people, you know, can't be connected to. And I think it's really just a failure of imagine, imagination, as well as a failure of, of policy and regulation to to really emphasize 21st century access and a transition process for all networks to eventually get to that point. Um, with, with recognition of, of there are limitations between urban markets and, and rural markets and, and kind of the in-between markets. And the debate, you know, as where it stands today, uh, you know, California has a, a state surplus. We also have um, the federal recovery money that came in. And the governor announced, uh, you know, uh, you know, through his budget, and this, the budget's a kind of a, a legislative process that has to be voted on by the middle of next month, mid-June. Um, you know, his intention to invest $7 billion on, on public broadband infrastructure uh, with the state really leading the charge of building a statewide open access uh, middle mile fiber network. And, um, you know, we are, you know, with a heavy emphasis on promoting local options, uh, re reinvigorating the grant program with, with a lot of the surplus money while updating its standards to really promote future, you know, future proof access. So where we were four years ago, where we are today is, is sizably different. Um, the advocacy and the, and the, and the fight is, is red hot now. Uh, because clearly if you are, uh, if fiber is a worry for you and you don't want someone to build a high capacity network in your backyard, uh, this is, this is the big deal, right? This is the fight for you. And, and similarly, uh, many of the communities that are eager, uh, from school districts to libraries, to, uh, low-income advocates, to the, the, you know, the medium, the small on the private industry side, as well as on the public side, um, this is the means to empower you to, to finally take destiny in your own hands. And so we, we will be fighting this fight in the next three weeks in California. Uh, I hope to report that we will have a, a massive uh, you know, fiber-focused infrastructure uh, state policy. And uh, with that, uh, happy to answer any questions from, from folks. Thanks, Ernesto. Um, really good information. Um, we're getting a lot of really good questions. You know, and uh, I think I mentioned last week that um, this semester, my students, uh, my data analytics students, one of the projects they did was a diversity, um, equity, inclusion study. And they just, what the city looked at is, you know, hey, the city's really prosperous, everything's going great, except uh, these certain zip codes that are being left behind. And why is that? And so they just dumped all the, the census data in and did a triple 
analysis, regression analysis, and it really popped up three things, which was surprising, but maybe not so surprising. So first, if um, you know you are left behind if your income, if you use 30% of your income to pay for your rent. Um, second was if you had limited access to broadband and computers, and third was if um, you um, didn't have a higher education. And so you can really see the effect of, five, you know, this was looking at everything and it boiled down to basically if you didn't have a robust broadband connectivity, you know, you weren't going to be able to get that good job. You weren't going to be able, you know, you were in this um, generational poverty state because you could, couldn't keep up with your rent and you really couldn't really have time to work on education. So I can see the impact of this is uh, amazing. Um, so what do you think about, you know, we have this big infrastructure bill hanging out in, in Congress that we think should be um, make it through by the end of the year. Um, what, what are the things we need to look out for that as far as from a, a, a digital equity perspective? So I think there's a, there's a, a couple of things, right? Um, I, there's a huge emphasis on affordability. And I think the, um, as well as an emphasis on the public model of, of, um, of fiber networks, uh, particularly if it's uh, you know, local governments or, or cooperatives or other kind of uh, non-traditional entities. And, um, you know, I think if, if people haven't really, and people in DC have not really gotten their head around the idea that if the, if the government were to pay the construction cost of these networks, which is the big, which is the big ticket, right? That's the, that's the cost, right? That's not, running these networks is not as expensive as the old networks because of just efficiencies in those networks as, and which then can kind of converts into what's the price uh, in order to, to deliver service. Um, but there is enormous amount of, of, of benefit and value we can give to a community if the if you eliminate the construction and the debt cost of, of laying fiber networks out there. So, you know, I think that's the that's probably one of the biggest things that um, really are at stake here because of the emphasis on figuring out how to get uh, both both like low income access as well as no income access, right? People who who have almost so, no money that um, if it's a policy of the government that people need to have connectivity even if they don't have the, the financing themselves to pay for it. Um, you know, fiber networks is, is probably how you're going to do it in terms of a ubiquitous deployment because you can, you can, you have a lot of um, flexibility uh, when it comes to those networks. So one of the questions that came in, and you mentioned open access, and they wanted you to elaborate on what you mean by that. Obviously, that can be a little bit of a lightning rod and can mean so many different things in so many different contexts. So, uh, what do you mean by that? And then, what, how do you enforce an open access requirement? Yeah, so you know, at, at a real high level, um, conceptually, you know, I, I it would just essentially would say like efficient sharing of a fiber network. Um, fiber is one of the unique mediums that enable, you know, like going back a step, right? Um, every single 21st century deployment of broadband that's happening now has fiber in its as the main ingredient. Whether it's Leo, whether it's 5G, whether it's it's basically anything, you know, Wi-Fi six, all of these things need high capacity lines. And so, particularly when it's the government paying to build the network uh, and the fact that you need to sustain that network and the likelihood of having overlapping fiber networks is, is zero in many markets with the exception of I would say you know dense markets you have to have a sharing policy of some sort um, for example uh, and other countries are already doing this I mean we're I think many people are familiar with what's happened what happens in Europe but uh, even South Korea you know adopted a, a fiber sharing policy in order to promote uh, ubiquitous 5g in all areas. So, you know, I, I, at a high level, that's what I mean. And then in, at a more granular level, you know, I think the, if the government were to be the direct builder uh, of these networks, you know, often I think that means that the government probably needs to be structurally separated from delivering broadband directly, meaning 
Um, the entity building those fiber wires, uh, if it's through a large grant or, or some sort of federal or state investment, the, the, in order to align the rationales of, of what you're deploying to maximize its value, you probably can't also be someone who directly sells broadband. And because if you were, uh, then you not as incentivized to share the network efficiently with all players who are, you, you know, rather, if you're structurally separated from that, from the direct delivery of the service, then you're incentivized to open that network as many to many players and many uses as possible. And so truly, I think a, a, a true open access network is someone who is only about, uh, you know, wholesale and, and offering the capacity of the network without um, directly competing with, with the follow-on users. And so in your advocacy, when you're thinking of open access, you're thinking of just those areas that those communities have been left behind and the, the community has to step up and figure out how to get fiber out versus areas that are fully served with um, a reputable service provider that's being able to deliver fiber to everyone in that community. Is that right, or do you see that differently? Yeah, you know, I'll take, uh, you know, San Francisco for is a great example of this. So uh, San Francisco has uh, several options for broadband service. It's probably one of the more competitive um, cities in the United States. And that a lot of that has come from local regulation. In particular, you know, San Francisco has banned uh, landlords from withholding access to their buildings, uh, apartment complexes, uh, from competition. Up until this point, until we had this local ordinance, uh, you had um, you know one monopoly with one apartment building negotiating exclusivity, and you had fiber companies surrounding these buildings that couldn't get in, which is insane because you have um, in San Francisco you have $40 gigabit symmetrical um, fiber uh, from a company called Sonic, uh, one of the largest uh, Celex in the country, and um, you know they're they're spread throughout the Bay Area, but uh, they, they even they can't get to all places, so. You know, I'd say for a place like San Francisco, they really do need to figure out fiber to the low-income communities uh, because they already have fairly uh, solid uh, competitive markets when it comes to their to their mid, middle middle and, and high-income neighborhoods. But if you go outside of a place like San Francisco, there are a lot of places that just don't have any fiber deployment at all, uh, even in your in your your cities uh, in the state. And so, you know, I would argue that if you lack fiber, you know, I think we often get you know sucked into the idea like, oh, well, do you have like this? basic minimum speed without recognizing like well what about five years from then and what about 10 years from then uh because we have to think about building these networks now because it will, will take five to ten years in some places if you lack fiber then i think you should be eligible for deploying fiber and it would it'd either be a local private or local public option you know one of the things i loved in your advocacy is uh, not only 100 meg symmetric but you point out latency you know 20 millisecond um the, you know, so when we looked at the RDOF, it was 100 milliseconds um, defined, you know, below 100 milliseconds with low latency. But as we know, you know, as you get more and more bandwidth, as we get into gigabits and 10 gigabits, latency becomes the the constraint, right? That's the long pole in the tent. Um, and then, you know, last week we had, you know, Charles Cheever talking about um, VR and saying that, hey, you know, when you, like, I can't put a VR goggles on because I get motion sickness. And he goes, that's because it has more than three milliseconds of latency. So our networks are going to advance and we're going to start using things like VR and being able to really get immersive broadband, latency is going to be, you know, critically important. And, you know, are you seeing pushback on, you know, reducing that latency to under 20 milliseconds? So the pushback that comes from, from, you know, I think I would say certain sectors of the broadband industry, you know, really boil down to the one basic thing, like, well, we can't do that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, Bennett Cyphers, who wrote the white paper for EFF, uh, a brilliant technologist in our, our organization, and I, and I really do encourage folks to read that white paper and share it because it really is, I think, a digestible read for non-engineers. 
um you know he really thought of you know the speeds won't matter as much at some point versus the latency and the instantaneous nature and you know i kind of probe it with him i, I you know, i'm decently sharp at the technology piece but i'm not an engineer i'm a, I'm a lawyer um and i you know i asked him like oh, okay well like you know can something be faster or, or how would it change and he's like look it's it's speed of light it's the speed of light over vacuum sealed wires uh we're not gonna you know unless someone redefines physics like that is that is the lowest latency you can figure out uh and so the longer the from the last mile to the to the greater internet and all is fibered up then you have achieved the lowest latency humanly possible by based on what we know about science and so that was really telling uh really kind of revealing is and, and a part of our thinking of why we emphasize so much on fiber optics versus just any old service will do is um the physics it's just it's just plain old physics at this point and and if, if the future is uh rapid you know instantaneous connectivity uh particularly interactions that you know i, I imagine a world of vr you know i even have a if i have my own vr set right here um you know i think the future is when that hardware gets cheap enough and lots of people are connected to it the the things you can do are, are really kind of amazing um but you need everyone to have the connectivity to make that make that real great and it's uh, last question here um so this should federal funding go to municipalities to build fiber networks? If so, what is your rebuttal to Republicans in Congress and lobbyists who are arguing that municipal networks have proven to fail and thus funding should only go to private providers? Yeah, I think if we don't uh, include the public model in a universal access effort, then we will not get universal access. Uh, because there's lots of places in this country where you really have to envision a 40 to, you know, a 30 to 40 year plan of what your investment strategy will look like, as well as the, your, your realistic expectations of how much revenue you're gonna generate. And if we believe everyone should have access to 21st century networks, then there are places where the, the, the kind of the traditional profit motive of, of the private sector will never work. Uh, and, and it's, it's ill-fated uh, policy to simply try to subsidize the difference. Uh, better to build sustainable networks that likely local government or cooperative uh, is more poised to, to maintain. Um, and I think the the obsession with with the handful of failures that exist out there uh, really just ignore the rapid success. I mean, the the most successful fiber network in the in one in the world is a city, uh, is Chattanooga. And the pandemic response of Chattanooga should have settled this question of should we include municipalities or not? Absolutely, we should because the reality is if we want to get low income, no income access solved as well it's probably the government that's going to be the most poised to handle that because of the mission of many of these public services. If you look at what happened in Chattanooga during the pandemic, they turned around with mature fiber networks. You know, these are networks that have been paid for over a long period of time now, and they were able to deliver 10 years free, 100 symmetrical internet to all of their low-income people throughout their city. And they can do that because there's a public fiber network that's in place. Comcast is there, at and is there, they exist. Like, it's not like they're driven out of the market or anything kind of nonsensical like that. But the no profit, the zero profit response uh, for those type of emergency needs, you know, if we believe that broadband is an essential service and we have to give it to people when even when they lack the money to pay for it, which I think is the emphasis of the emergency benefit program, then we have to have public infrastructure out there to make that sustainable. Otherwise, um, you know, you're going to ask players who have to make a profit just because they have you know, duties to investors um, to somehow rationally figure out how to drop their costs in such a way that that just wouldn't make sense in the private model. So. You know, I, I think um, I think the emphasis is really driven by cable, and and I'll, and I'll say very clearly why cable is telling members of Congress, oh yeah, municipal fiber is a bad idea. 
is they're ter they're terrified of the idea of of entities who can take the 30 to 40 year long term view of 21st century access and deliver gigabit multi gigabit internet uh, when they just they just don't want to do that right? like they don't want to have to spend the 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 money necessary to keep up with that um, and the longer they can hold that off in more places then the less money they have to spend in their own networks and I think that's a an unfortunate motivation but that is that is what's driving that debate. Ernesto, right, so we're we're out of time but I, there are a lot of people asking for that your white paper. We do have a link on the fiber broadband site. We we like that white paper and we put it on our website, but you can tell where you can get it on your website, right? Yes. Uh, if you just uh, if you do just do a search for uh, EFF, um, you know, uh, fiber uh, superior medium, you'll 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 find it uh, on the top of the search. But uh, we you know we have it in our in our um, in our blog. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Ernesto. Always really informative, and uh, really appreciate you joining us this morning. Next week, uh, we're going to be discussing business fiber trends and how fiber providers and emerging services are lighting up the U.S. landscape with my good friend, Rosemary Cochran, the principal of Vertical Systems Group. So you're not going to want to miss that. So thanks again for joining us. We look forward to getting back together next Wednesday.